This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My comments tonight about St. Thomas's views about human nature, I'm not going to be quoting from particular works of St. Thomas with any frequency. I'm going to be presenting um, sort of, you know, summary introductory view of how he thinks about human nature. I'll just preface it by saying that what I'm presenting is primarily philosophical in character. Uh, that is to say, it has to do with what St. Thomas thinks we can discover just by the power uh, of reasoning that we have as a gift from God uh, without direct, strict dependence upon the contents of Christian faith or revelation. But everything that I'm going to say tonight is also in line with how St. Thomas thinks theologically about human beings and our place in, uh, in God's creation. Okay. All right. The, the sort of unifying theme for the presentation, I've titled it, you know, Between Animal and Angel, Human Nature, According to Thomas Aquinas, uh, the sort of unifying theme and something that's familiar to um, anyone who has, you know, some familiarity with St. Thomas's understanding of the cosmos is what's usually called the hierarchy of being or the great chain of being. Okay. So uh, St. Thomas understands human beings as occupying a certain place within the, as it were, hierarchy or order of things created by God. We are, of course, inferior to God, and we're inferior to angels, but we're superior to the rest of material creation. And so usually when Thomists present the so-called hierarchy of being or great chain of being, we have God at the top as pure actuality, angels who are pure spirits, they're not material beings, but they're not pure actuality in the way that God is. Now, very famously, Thomas characterizes um, the way in which angels and even all physical things are distinct or different from God because he says that we're composed of essence and existence. That's a topic for a whole other lecture. If you haven't encountered that language before, that's okay. Um, it's just to say there is a difference between, uh, between God and the angels too that we won't, we won't get into as much uh, today. But then, of course, human beings are also thought of by St. Thomas as being at the top, as it were, the, the highest or most perfect of things in material creation. And so, of course, we can compare ourselves to non-human animals, to plants, um, to what St. Thomas and other Aristotelians will call minerals, by which they mean non-living composites, uh, things like, um, you know, things like water and complex chemicals. Um, and then towards the bottom of the, the hierarchy of material things, the elemental bodies, the simplest kinds of things, whatever they may be. Thomas, following Aristotle, wrongly thought that the elemental bodies were things like earth, air, fire, and water. Um, we have a different, suffice it to say, a different list of, uh, of the elements. Okay. All right, so we can see that um, we can think of human beings if we have something in common with angels in some respects, then we're going to be the lowest of the highest. And if we are in some way superior to the rest of material creation, then we're also going to be the highest of the lowest. And this is, uh, there's an expression like this in St. Thomas for characterizing uh, the place of human nature within, within creation. We are the highest of the lower things, that is material things, and we are the lowest of the higher things, that is uh, purely immaterial things like God and the angels, okay? We should say something first about this hierarchy among intellectual beings, the hierarchy among immaterial beings. Um, God, of course, is at the top of this, you know, this hierarchy and every hierarchy God is the, is the greatest of beings. Um, Thomas thinks of God as subsistent understanding. He is his understanding. He perfectly understands himself and by understanding himself understands all of his effects. And so he says that he's, he's pure actuality in the order of intelligibility. If that expression is not immediately clear what it means, that's okay. We're gonna uh, come back and by the end of the lecture, hopefully that, that expression will make a little bit more sense. By contrast, Thomas thinks of the, the, the hierarchy of the angels. One thing to say about St. Thomas on the angels that's important is that um, first, Thomas thinks that every angel is absolutely unique in kind. Each angel is a species unto itself uh, for reasons that I can get into a little bit later um, in the presentation. But Thomas thinks every angel is strictly one of a kind. There's only one angel of this kind and that's Gabriel. 
And Michael is a different sort of being from Gabriel. He's not just a, you know, one more angel, the way that Socrates and Plato are two beings of the same kind. Every angel is its own species. Every angel is its own distinct kind of being, St. Thomas thinks. And the other thing that'll become clear from our presentation is that Thomas does not think of human souls as angels trapped in bodies, right? This is a, an important uh, misunderstanding to, to eliminate that um, we're not, our souls are not angels that happen to be in bodies. Our angels, are, our, our souls are not um, just like angels in every respect, although there will be some important uh, points of, uh, of similarity as we'll see, okay? So angels, this hierarchy of angels, Thomas thinks, um, they naturally understand themselves, they have understanding, they have knowledge without need for sense cognition, they don't have bodies, they don't have senses, but they're not purely actual in their understanding the way that God is. So there's a sort of hierarchy among the angels according to their capacities for knowledge. Okay. And human beings, we are at the very bottom, right, among things capable of intellectual, spiritual activity. Uh, and this is an expression we will only touch on later in the lecture, but Thomas says that in this hierarchy, our mind is pure potentiality in the order of intelligibility. Okay, we'll come back. So this is a slide that will make more, more sense if it's uh, not um, immediately clear what all of this means. It, it, it will be a little clearer, hopefully, by the end of the presentation. Okay. okay, so in order for us to understand the place of human beings, if we're the highest of the lowest and the lowest of the highest, then we're going to have to understand how we are the highest of the lowest in the hierarchy of material things. And we're going to have to say something about how we're the lowest of the highest in the hierarchy of spiritual intellectual beings, okay? That is, we wanna explain more carefully what was going on uh, on that previous slide, okay? So in order to do the former task, understanding how we're the highest of the lowest, comparing us to other material things, there's a few topics that I need to discuss or present. Um, somewhat quickly, uh, but to give you a sense of how St. Thomas thinks about human nature, we have to say something about what's known as his theory of hylomorphism, which is something that he takes from Aristotle. We have to say something about the claim that the human soul is the form of the body, the form of the living body. And then we need to say in what respect the human soul is the highest among souls or the best among souls. And then for us to understand how the human being is the lowest of the highest in that hierarchy of spiritual intellectual beings, also free beings, that it, free choice is something that Thomas thinks goes along with being intellectual, having, having an intellectual mind. Um, we're the lowest of the highest. We need to explain how this might be the case. And we will have to say something about how St. Thomas thinks about what intellectual knowledge is. And the goal will be to explain what it means to say that our intellect, our agent intellect, this is the technical term that we'll use, is the least powerful among intellectual lights, okay? So that expression may not be at all clear what that would mean yet, but by the end of the lecture, that expression should be a little bit clearer, okay? Okay. So first, we have to say something about the theory of hylomorphism. And if this is something that you're not familiar with previously, um, I, this will be a pretty quick presentation, but this is so critical to understanding how St. Thomas thinks about the material world. Um, if you think in materialist or reductionist or physicalist terms, you know, if you think, for example, that a human being is fundamentally really nothing but a very complex collection of atoms and molecules, and that's the reality of a human being, well, then it's going to be very difficult to say where the soul comes in, you know, comes on the scene. St. Thomas following Aristotle has a very different conception of the physical world because he understands the physical world not only in terms of material principles, right, and material components out of which something could be made. He understands the material world in terms of this other co-principle called, called form, okay? So if this is your very first encounter with hylomorphism, this will be a little bit quick. Some of you may have encountered this, this notion before. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll, of course, you know, during the Q&A, if people have any questions uh, and need me to elaborate on anything here, I'll be happy to do so. Okay, the theory of hylomorphism is this. All bodily physical substances are composed in their being of two principles, form and matter. 
And it's called hylomorphism because morphe is the Greek term for form and hule is the Greek term for matter. Okay. How do we discover these principles? For Aristotle, we discover these principles of form and matter by analyzing change or motion. Okay. By thinking about the physical world in terms of its most obvious feature, which is that physical things change, right? As I'm waving my hand right now. The Aristotelian thesis is this, in order for us to make sense of the reality of change or motion, we always have to distinguish these three things. We have to distinguish the subject that undergoes the change, second, the characteristic or feature that that subject acquires, and third, the prior absence of that characteristic in that subject. That's what Aristotle means by matter, form, and privation. So for example, if I were to explain the change that is the change of place of this phone from here to there, I would say that the subject of the change is the phone, the form that it acquires is being over there, and it was a change. And so to think about this as a change, I have to acknowledge that before the change, the phone was not over there. Okay, so that's initially what Aristotle means by matter and form is just the subject of some characteristic and that characteristic. And you can't think about change without thinking about those two things in addition to privation or the prior absence of that, of that characteristic, okay? The reason why all this is going to be important is because Aristotle and St. Thomas are going to say that a soul is a kind of form, okay? They're gonna use this notion of form in order to explain what the soul is. All right, so we can give some other examples here at the bottom. A pot of water as matter goes from not being warm, that is in a state of privation, to being warm, that's a form. My hand goes from not being on top of my head to being on top of my head, okay? The matter of the change is my hand, the form is being on top of my head, and the privation is that it wasn't there before. But then we have these other cases, things that are also obviously changes. Hydrogen and oxygen become water or an oak tree becomes dead wood. And for reasons that I'll get into, get into in just a moment, Aristotle and Thomas think it's a bit more difficult to say what the matter of these changes would be. Okay, okay. So there's a, a difficult question. What is the matter and what is the form involved in those examples of change, okay? All right, why would it be difficult to explain that, uh, that case? Here we have to distinguish what's called substantial change, and we need to distinguish substantial change from uh, what we'll call accidental change. And in order to do that, we have to introduce the distinction between substance and accident. And here we're getting to something very fundamental about the way that St. Thomas thinks about physical reality and even all of reality. Aristotle and St. Thomas think of all of reality as being populated by independent substances of various kinds that have their various features, okay? So substances are individual independent beings of a certain kind. For example, Aristotle would think of me, a human being, as a substance. He would think of an oak tree as a substance. He might think of a stone as a substance. He might think of water as a substance, okay? Um, independent individual beings of a certain kind. Okay. By contrast, accidents are the features or characteristics of a substance that are distinct from the substance itself. Um, and these are frequently features that the substance might or might not have while remaining the same sort of substance. And so accidents are the sorts of things that can come and go, that can easily change while the substance remains the same kind of thing. So for example, water being warm is an accident and Socrates being seated is an accident. So being warm, being seated, these are accidents, but being Socrates is not an accident, okay? It's not uh, a feature that Socrates might or might not have, right? Socrates is an individual independent being of a certain kind that is, he's a human being. So Socrates is a substance. Socrates is a substance that 
um, has various characteristics, um, uh, but he is himself a substance. And similarly, Aristotle and Thomas would think of water as a substance, okay? Water is not an accidental feature of something. Water is a substance that has various accidental features, okay? All right, well, if we have this distinction between substance and accident, then we can distinguish between substantial change and accidental change, okay? So in an accidental change, a substance as the matter of the change loses or gains an accidental form. So many of the examples we've already given would, would be in line with this. The pot of water goes from not being warm to being warm. That is an accidental change. But in a substantial change, something more fundamental happens because one independent being of a certain kind ceases to exist and some other independent being of a different kind comes to exist in its place. So there's something more radical about substantial change in comparison to accidental change. So as Aristotle and Thomas think about it, in substantial change, what happens is that a more fundamental sort of matter that they call prime matter loses one substantial form and gains another, okay? So a substance corrupts, ceases to be, for example, when Socrates dies or when an oak tree dies, and another substance is generated or begins to exist in its place. And this is, you know, to focus on the case of, you know, of human death, this is what St. Thomas thinks at the end of our lives. Um, the human being as a whole, complete substance ceases to be. And what's left behind, right, in a human being's place is a corpse. All right, and the, but you would say the same sort of thing for um, an oak tree dying um, or for hydrogen and oxygen becoming water. These would all be examples of what we call substantial change, okay? Well, if it's a change, then there has to be a matter, a subject of the change, and the subject of substantial change, the name that Aristotle and Thomas give to this is prime matter. Now, prime matter, if you haven't encountered it before, is one of the more difficult notions in Aristotle and St. Thomas's philosophy. Um, so it's a little difficult at first to wrap your, your mind around this because it's matter, it's the subject of a change, but it's not any particular actual kind of thing. And St. Thomas characterizes it even as a principle of just pure potentiality with no actuality itself, okay? He thinks it never exists independently you never find prime matter on its own. It's not any particular kind of material thing, but it's this underlying material substrate. Um, it's like a kind of conserve, you know, fundamental conservation principle or something. Okay, underlying, um, underlying all physical things. Okay. Okay. So that's the theory of hylomorphism very quickly. Okay. Every physical substance is composed of a substantial form and prime matter. Okay, so you can talk about the substantial form that makes water water. You can talk about the substantial form that makes a certain kind of stone that kind of stone. You can talk about the substantial form that makes a human being a human being. Okay, all right, here we can now start to talk about what Aristotle and St. Thomas mean by a soul. Okay. Well, soul in, in ancient Greek philosophy just means it most fundamentally and most generally, what the word soul means is the principle that makes a living thing alive. So one of the things that's surprising when you first encounter St. Thomas's claims and his views about the soul is to find out that like Aristotle, he doesn't think that only human beings have souls. He thinks that all living things can be said to have soul, including non-human animals and even plants. Okay, so this is if that's a shift in, in terminology or a conceptual shift for you, it's an important one for how Thomas thinks about what the soul is, okay? If a thing is said to be alive, then we say that it has a soul, okay? What is the soul for Aristotle? It just is the substantial form of the living thing, okay? okay. In every case for Aristotle, a physical substance is the sort of substance that it is by its substantial form. Substantial form is what makes this kind of thing to be the kind of thing that it is. So if there's a principle that makes living things alive, and that's what we mean by the word soul, then clearly soul is going to be a substantial form. Okay. So this is just Aristotle applying his general theory about the physical world to the case of living things. Okay. Okay. So like other substantial forms, the soul is going to make 
the substance that's alive to be the kind of substance that it is. And the soul is going to be the source of the various properties, powers, capabilities peculiar to that kind of substance. So what is the, what is the soul in a human being or in a dog or in a cat or in an oak tree? It's this principle that makes that thing, that kind of thing, and is thereby the source of the properties and the powers or capacities co peculiar to that kind of thing, okay? So um, if it is um, a capacity of water to do certain things to other physical things that are different from what oxygen does to those things or what stone does to those things, and if there are very different sorts of capacities in an oak tree insofar as it can grow and reproduce, and even very different sorts of capacities in an animal because it's capable of sensation, capable of appetite, capable of desire, capable of moving itself from place to place. In every case, we're going to say the soul is the principle that makes this material thing that kind of thing and is thereby the source of those, those properties and powers that that thing has, okay? Okay, so that's what the soul is. The soul is a form of a living body. Okay, the form of a living body. And it is, again, the principle of life and the principle of all of the powers and activities that are peculiar to the living thing. So we can say the soul is the source of vital powers and vital activities. Okay, well, what sorts of vital activity are there? That is, what sorts of activities do living things perform? And here there's a certain hierarchy that St. Thomas following Aristotle recognizes. Uh, the lowest level among living things, Thomas, following Aristotle, calls the vegetative. These are things capable of nutrition, growth, and reproduction, and he has in mind the sorts of things that even plants can do. Higher than this are sensitive things. By sensitive, we don't mean emotional, but having the capacity for sensation. And uh, Thomas, like Aristotle, thinks that's the dividing line between animals and plants. That might, there's some issues that have to be thought through there for contemporary biology, we might question whether this is the precise dividing line between animals and plants, but that's a matter for, um, for some discussion. Um, but what are this higher level, whether you say this is the dividing line between animals and plants or not, there's a difference between the things that have sensation and the things that lack sensation, okay? And things that have sensation are capable of a new and different kind of activity, activity in comparison to merely vegetative things. Now, it's important to note everything that has sensation also has the vegetative powers, right? There's no living thing that lacks the vegetative powers, no physical living thing that lacks the vegetative powers, okay? Beyond sensation, and this is a view that St. Thomas takes from, from Aristotle, our intellectual capacity is something that transcends and is higher than the capacity of things that merely engage in sensation. So it's precisely in our intellectuality, our rationality, that St. Thomas thinks that we are different from and genuinely superior to, right, other kinds of living things, okay? It's for this reason that the classic definition of human being that Aristotle and St. Thomas accept is that human beings are the rational animals. We are truly animals. We have the sorts of uh, powers that other living things have and the sorts of powers that other animals have, but beyond this, we also have our intellectual uh, capacity. So we are then the highest among the lowest because we share in, although we share in common with all physical things that we are composed of form and matter, and we share in common with all living physical things that our form is a soul, Nevertheless, our soul is the source of a certain activity, intellectual activity, and also volitional activity, our capacity for uh, free desire and free choice. Our soul is the source of these activities that are more perfect than the sorts of activities performed by other physical things. Okay. So it's in terms of our capacities uh, that Thomas thinks we can say we're superior to the rest of material creation. Okay. It also needs to be said, and it's here where we have the sort of bridge to from being the highest among the lowest to also being the lowest among the highest, that in possessing 
the capacity or power for intellectual activity, for intellectual knowledge. Most importantly, for St. Thomas, this is going to be the capacity that makes it possible for God to grant us the beatific vision, okay? That makes it possible for God to unite us to himself eternally in a vision of him. That's something that, right, the oak tree and the dog don't have, and it's because they don't have the intellectual capacity. So we transcend in our being what's purely physical or material because we possess this capacity for, um, for intellectual activity, okay? Now, this is uh, a little more technical, a little more um, uh, precise in terms of St. Thomas's metaphysics, uh, but it's an important part of Thomas's explanation of how we are the highest among the lowest. In order for our souls to be the source of intellectual and volitional activities, Thomas thinks that our soul has to have a kind of different mode of existing and a different sort of relationship to our body in comparison to non-human animals. And in particular, St. Thomas thinks that our soul can be said to exist in its own right, to exist per se, and to operate or act per se in our intellectual acts and in our, in our volitional acts, in our um, volitional desires and choices. Every other substantial form, the substantial form of every other physical thing is only a formal principle by which a physical living thing exists and operates, okay? Whereas our soul can be said to operate in its own right. So in terms of, um, uh, you know, Catholic spiritual theology, there is a, a really important, you know, truth to talking about, you know, what is interior to the soul. Right? The soul has being in its own right, activity in its own right, in a way that other, the souls of other living things, even, even non-human animals, uh, simply don't have this, this mode of being and this mode of activity. Okay? It's also for this reason that Thomas thinks that the human soul is naturally immortal, naturally capable of surviving death. Um, and although this is way beyond you know, today's presentation, he thinks there are good philosophical arguments for that. For that conclusion that the human soul can survive death. But here we need to be really clear. There's something very peculiar about Thomas's view. He thinks that the human soul is both the form of the living physical human being. The human being is the soul and the body. The human being is this composite of both form and matter of soul and body. He thinks that in that respect, the soul is the formal principle of my activities, okay? All, all the activities that I perform with my body, but at the same time, my soul is a form that exists or subsists in its own right and operates in its own right, okay? So, you know, I, earlier I said, you know, that on the sort of like Cartesian view that many of us might have, you know, from our formation in science or from, you know, from various, you know, sources in our um, intellectual formation, you know, there is a sort of like the human being looks like kind of a strange hybrid. Well, the human being is kind of a strange hybrid on St. Thomas's view. Um, the, the where we, this, this role that we occupy, okay? But it's not that we're the only material things with any form, right? Any soul, right? Uh, that would be the Cartesian view, right? Instead, it's that our souls are very peculiar because they have activity in their own right. And again, this is important for Catholic spiritual theology, like talk of what's interior to the soul really means something, okay? It's not just a, a metaphor, okay? Okay, so by existing and operating per se, the human soul is like an angel, which exists and operates as a pure form without matter, okay? But by being the form of a physical body, of a physical substance, the human soul is radically unlike an angel. Okay, so we're not angels trapped in bodies. The human soul is distinguishable from an angel because of its very nature, the human soul is the form of a body. And this has theological import for Thomas because then it explains the fittingness of the resurrection. We really are incomplete in our nature without the body. You know, we're not just spirits that happen to have been trapped in body. That would be a more neoplatonic way of thinking about the relationship between the soul and the body. Human nature includes both the body and the soul. 
The soul is of its very nature, the form of a physical body. And this is why the doctrine of the resurrection is so uh, fitting and beautiful. Okay. okay. All right. Up to this point, we've been talking about how we're the highest among the lowest. Now I need to say something about how we're the lowest among the highest. Okay. Uh, there's no easy way to, to present uh, very quickly how to think about our being the lowest among the highest. Um, we have to talk about what intellectual activity is fundamentally for St. Thomas. What is it to understand with the mind? Okay, And then we'll contrast our understanding with the understanding of things higher than us. That's the only way Thomas thinks that we can explain how we're the lowest among the highest, okay? Well, what is intellectual cognition? What is this power for understanding that we have? It's most fundamentally a capacity for understanding what things are, for understanding the essences of things, okay? But doing that in a way that makes it possible for us to form judgments and to form acts of reasoning formed out of judgment. So, you know, the way to, to work your way into this insight is to think about what an argument looks like, to realize that arguments are made out of sentences, and then that sentences are made out of terms, and that you have to understand what terms mean in order for, right, your judgments and propositions and your arguments to be possible. So the sorts of things we usually mean, you know, by thinking, okay, the sort of thing that we're up to when we're, um, arguing with someone or reasoning about whether some, uh, you know, some position is correct or incorrect. Most fundamentally, what makes the activity of thinking possible, intellectual thinking, is grasping what things are, thinking about what things are. And the technical term that Thomas uses is understanding the essences of things. That's fundamentally what the human mind does that our sense powers don't do. So, I can, I can see color and I can hear sounds and I can smell odors and I can perceive physical objects in terms of those sensible characteristics. But to understand what a living thing is, to understand what a dog is or understand what hydrogen is or what oxygen is, sensation doesn't do that, okay? And the capacity to understand what things are, that's fundamentally what we mean by the capacity for intellectual activity, okay? All right. So defining is like the first thing that should come to mind as what we mean by intellectual activity, because that's how we express our understanding of what something is. Well, that raises the question, how do we grasp what something is? How do we come to know the essence of something? And this would be a, a whole, you know, lengthy, uh, you know, matter for presentation by itself. This is, I'm moving very, very quickly. You know, what does Thomas think about how we come to know what something is? Well, St. Thomas's theory that he takes from Aristotle is that we have to distinguish between actually two capacities that we have for reasons that I'll get into in a moment. We have to distinguish between our power for understanding the essences of things. That's what Thomas is going to call the possible intellect. And second, our power for abstracting essences from our sense experience, where our sense experience is also mediated through um, our imaginative capacities. So these are the possible intellect and the agent intellect. If this is all new terminology to you, I, I, I apologize. Um, I'm going to try to make clear what Thomas means by agent intellect, why he says we have to have one. And the reason we have to do that is because he's going to compare our agent intellect to higher intellects. And that's going to be how we'll articulate our being the lowest among the highest. Okay, so that's, that's the goal in view. The most fundamental and important claim here is that we depend upon our sensation and our imagination in order to come to grasp what things are, okay? And there's a capacity in us for abstracting or drawing out of our sense experience and our imaginative constructions of the objects of sense experience, um, abstracting, grasping what things are. We have to distinguish these two intellectual powers that we have, the possible intellect, which is kind of like the I in comparison to essences, objects of understanding, and this other power that Thomas calls the agent intellect, which is our power for abstracting essences from sense experience. 
We have to distinguish these two intellectual powers in as Thomas thinks because of the way that our intellectual cognition is unlike our sense cognition, okay? Objects of sense cognition just move us to the, the act of sensing. So if you have a red object and if you have an eye that's healthy, you'll have the seeing of red, okay? If I have ears that are functioning and there is you know, a sound at a certain pitch, then I will hear that pitch. I'll just be moved to sense experience in a sort of very passive way. Sense objects act on us and we're very passive. We're just moved, okay? We're not purely passive, Thomas thinks, in our understanding, okay? Sense objects, physical objects, don't just immediately make us understand what they are. And that's just evident. <laughs> You know, you don't, you know, the reason why there's a science of biology is because you can't just lick, look at a living thing and understand everything that there is to be understood about it. Whereas you can see its color without needing to work at it. Okay. That's why Thomas thinks there's this need to posit what he calls the agent intellect. Okay. Okay. So the, the, the typical comparison, this comes from Aristotle, is that the agent intellect is kind of like light. So if you think in the case of our, our vision, our, you know, sense vision, uh, we might think of a tree, an object that's green as acting on our power for seeing, that is on our, our visual uh, power, our eye. It does that in the presence of the sun. It's the sun that makes the visible object able to act on the eye. And the green object is not able to move us to see green apart from the presence of that source of light, okay? And that's the relationship in Thomas's view between the agent intellect, the object as imagined, the technical term for that is the phantasm, and the possible intellect. In order for us to see what the thing is, okay, we need to have an imaginative representation of that object, and we have this power, the agent intellect, that makes it possible for us to see something of what the thing is, okay? This is moving very, very quickly, I know, but the, the point is going to be this comparison. Agent intellect is like a light, okay? And if that claim makes some sense, there is, um, there's this power in us that's active that makes it so that through our well-constructed imaginings about things that we've experienced many times, there's the foundation for our being able to grasp something of what they are, what kind of thing they are, coming to understand them, to define them, and to reason well about them. That's, that's the rough idea. So if this simile, this, this uh, well, and it's really more than a metaphor for St. Thomas, but at this, even if we just take it as a metaphor, what we're calling agent intellect is kind of like light then we can say how we are the lowest among the highest. We're the lowest among the highest because Thomas thinks that our intellectual light is the very weakest or the dimmest of intellectual lights. We have an active intellectual capacity, this agent intellect, that's proportioned to our dependence for our, in our understanding on sense experience. We're the sorts of intellectual beings that only do intellectual things. We have an active intellectual capacity, a kind of like it's an intellectual light and it's the dimmest of lights and it only operates through our sense experience. We depend upon sense experience in order to arrive at any understanding of what things are. Which is to say for St. Thomas, we have a power for understanding that is well proportioned to the fact that we are animals with sensation that we're physical beings endowed with powers for sense cognition, okay? But by way of comparison, angels, and of course God is superior to all the angels, have no need for sensation in order to understand. Angels don't need bodies, they don't need the senses, and so they have a superior intellectual light. They need to have a superior intellectual light in order to understand without dependence upon a body, okay? Now, there's a lot more that could be said um, and would need to be said about how Thomas thinks angels understand if they don't have bodies, what their understanding is like in comparison to ours, okay? But it's in this respect that Thomas thinks that we are the lowest 
among the higher things. We have the very weakest of, of intellectual capacities, okay? So now we can draw everything together and say something a little bit more uh, precise about this great chain of being, that we are the, the highest of the lowest and the lowest of the highest. At the top again, God is pure actuality. Angels are not pure actuality, um, but they are inferior to God and superior to us in the hierarchy of intellectual or spiritual being. We are the lowest in terms of the intellectual capacity. And that doesn't mean angels are um, better at reasoning than we are. In fact, Thomas thinks angels are superior in their understanding that they don't have to reason at all in order to know, okay? Um, for reasons that I could get into if someone asked during the Q&A. The fact that we even have to engage in reasoning, Thomas thinks, is a consequence of the weakness of, of our minds in comparison to uh, angels and God. But then we are, of course, the highest of the lowest. We have um, uh, all of the capacities, the powers that animals have, but beyond that, we have power shared in common with higher spiritual things. And so we're the highest among the hierarchy of sensible material things and the lowest among the hierarchy of intellectual or spiritual beings, okay? So this is why for Thomas, we can uh, think well of the human being of human nature as occupying this middle place between, um, between the, the non-human animal and the angel, okay? It's not that we're a hybrid, it's not that we're an angel stuck in a body, um, but we do occupy this place where we have a lot in common both with um, all of the things inferior to us and with angels superior to us. And I'll close with this point, just to make one other theological point. Um, St. Thomas in a couple of places suggests that this is one reason for the fittingness of the incarnation, because in the human being, you find, as it were, the whole cosmos, okay, we have all the powers that physical, any other physical things have, and we have the sorts of powers, even in a very diminished and weak form, that superior spiritual things have. And so by uniting himself to human nature, um, in, the, in the human nature of Jesus Christ, uh, the divine word unites himself to all of creation. Okay. All right, uh, I will leave it there, and I look forward to uh, any questions and, uh, and discussion. So thank you for your attention. So my question was that I know that a few philosophers say that God is a God of reasoning, like he is reason intrinsically. So therefore, wouldn't that create the assumption that therefore angels are also have the ability to reason? And that's why we have, even though it's a lower level, but we have also the ability to do so as well. Okay, yeah, very good. So, I mean, you know, speaking within, uh, you know, how, how St. Thomas would think about things, both philosophically and theologically, um, it's true that, you know, I mean, one of the most important terms, you know, from St. John's gospel is, you know, the Greek term, you know, logos, right? And this is a word that's, that's frequently used for reason. That's often translated into Latin as ratio. That's the word that Thomas uses uh, for reason. So that's, that's something that has to be acknowledged that sometimes, you know, the tradition uh, scripture will speak of reason in connection with God. Um, so, but it's just a terminological point um, that in Latin and in English that is more dependent upon the Latin and upon the Greek, there's a kind of reason in the broad sense, intellectual knowing in the broad sense that Thomas following Aristotle thinks, and, and following the Platonic tradition too, um, a kind of knowing that we find in the human mind that we don't find in higher minds that in the Christian tradition would be, you know, angels and God. And that's what we mean in English by reasoning. Okay. And where reasoning means this, that the main word to associate it with is, is discursive reasoning. Okay. Thomas thinks the thing that we do that angels don't do is that I first think about this and I do that in order to think about that. And I do that in order to come to understand this. So like, think about what you're doing in an argument. You know, if you say, you know, every A is B, every B is C, ah, therefore every A is C. That's the thing that Thomas thinks angels and God don't do. 
And the reason is there's a kind of motion or change involved in first thinking about this, then thinking about that, then thinking about something else. So that's what's called discursive reasoning. Um, and to be really precise, when I say, you know, reasoning isn't attributed to angels or God, what I mean is discursive reasoning. If by reason you just mean the power for knowledge or knowledge, then yeah, absolutely. We should say God is reason itself. Okay, that's right. I hope that helps. Um, when I was reading St. Thomas Aquinas, the Thomistic um, by Father Brennan, mm -hmm. um, there were some writings where what I had gathered, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that the more we sin, the more we begin to act more like the creature mm -hmm. rather than like the soul, the spirit, mm -hmm. and that it influences our reasoning and compromises good reasoning. Mm -hmm. St. Teresa of Elizabeth of the Trinity talks about. Yeah, good. And so this is, yeah, absolutely. And Thomas, you know, he's, you know, following the tradition on this point, identifying a certain weakening of the mind as one of the, the consequences of sin, right? One of the wounds caused by sin is a, a darkening of the mind. And you have to be really, Thomas, you know, when he explains how and why this is the case, there's, you know, there's a bit of, of technical uh, there's, there's a, a few points that we have to go through to give a full explanation of it, but I can, I can say the following, you know, first, you know, of course, Thomas distinguishes between the intellect and the will. Okay. You know, the intellect is capacity for understanding and the will is, you know, our capacity for, um, intellectual desire and choice. Okay. Uh, and for free choice. Okay. Um, it's not that Thomas thinks that sin like darkens our agent intellect. It's not that it diminishes the very capacity for reasoning. Okay. And Thomas thinks there aren't really any habits, any, um, accidental dispositions of the agent intellect. That's to put it technically, but our actual understanding. Okay. Depends very much on our will and depends very much on our attention, okay? And so um, sin darkens the mind, okay? Insofar as the will is not as well disposed to have us attend to understanding, okay? And then the other part of what you said about, you know, sin drawing us down into the, the bodily and the, and the, you know, um, uh, um, the more animal side of us, Thomas would agree with this. I mean, one of the wounds of sin is, is concupiscence, um, an excessive desire for uh, pleasures of the body and for, uh, for physical things. And yeah, insofar as there's more of a desire for those things, then we are easily distracted from, um, from understanding well and, and from willing well. So the, I would say, yes, everything you said is exactly, uh, um, exactly right as, as Thomas thinks about it. And he would explain it in terms of these, you know, these, uh, these different powers or capacities that we have, the intellect, the will, our sense appetite, um, and so on. Okay. I hope that helps. Is it, is it fair to say that there's that, that, um, I don't know how to put it in the right terms, but like a, a I don't want to say a dual, like almost like two different types of living someone could have in their mind, like one more of the world that's um, submitted more to the human worldly way of living than the true life that we see in Jesus Christ by living for his mm -hmm. will and living mm -hmm. according to his will, that mm -hmm. we reach that higher reasoning that's beyond the normal capacity that we start getting into more of the, what, what is true, genuine, true, genuine wisdom mm -hmm. beyond mm -hmm. just basic intellect? Yeah, very good. So, I mean, um, I think this is a very big question. The first thing that comes to mind, you know, insofar as you're talking about a kind of duality in us, right? On a, I'm not a theologian, I'm a philosopher, so I'll, you know, kind of tread carefully here. Um, but, you know, I'm a Catholic too, you know, so, um, uh, you know, I mean, obviously in us, right, to the extent that we still have any, you know, sinful habits, right? These are things that right draw us away from the way that we may still be fundamentally committed to live, and this is the reason you know in the in St. Thomas and in the tradition for the distinction between even between like mortal sin and venial sin, right? That there's things that draw you know would tend to draw us away that are still you know habits that we have, 
Mm-hmm. Um, even if our will is, is, you know, sort of fundamentally well-oriented towards, towards God. I mean, I should add that the way that I explained things today was very metaphysical and philosophical in character, right? You know, it was, it's our capacity for knowing, like, as a natural capacity. And in the context of the spiritual life, in the context of, you know, our lives as Catholics, we're talking about what God did, does to us by grace, which I didn't get into really at all um, in, in the talk. The other thing, just one other notion that I would mention that's helpful here, um, and it's a notion that Thomas gets from Aristotle in his moral philosophy, is the notion of concupiscence, okay, mm-hmm. that we can have a sort of state of character, and Aristotle and Thomas thinks this is the most common state of character, um, concupiscence and in, um, and in, um, uh, sorry, continence and incontinence. Sorry, um, I meant to say continence and incontinence. So continence is a state of character where you're fundamentally committed to doing well, to doing what you should, but you experience some, you nevertheless experience some desire that's out of line with that commitment and understanding, um, but you resist it. That's the state of continence. And then the state of incontinence is the unfortunate state where that we are all, or, you know, any of us who are not saints are, you know, familiar with the state of incontinence where, you know, we are fundamentally committed to, to, to living well and acting well. We experience some desire uh, for acting differently and we fail. Okay. That's, um, that's what Thomas following Aristotle calls the state of the state of incontinence. So um, yeah, one of the, one of the things that comes out of this psychology that Thomas has, where we can distinguish our intellect and our will and our imagination and our senses and, you know, um, and our appetites and our, our will is one kind of appetite and our sense appetite is a different sort of appetite that we have as animals, like with all of those things. Well, now we have all sorts of sources, you know, that explain the complexity of our, of our psychology. Um, Mm. does that, does that help? Um, yeah. My question. Okay, good. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic question. Uh, okay, so yeah, Rory says uh, no uh, microphone or video, but uh, asks if I can give an example of the human soul operating from itself or operating per se, operating in its own right. And yeah, Thomas thinks that the act, all intellectual acts, okay, all acts of the mind in the in the sense of the intellect, are acts in which the human soul operates of itself, and all acts of the will. Okay, so all acts, the will is the, again, the, the intellectual appetite. It is our capacity for um, desire at a higher level of a different sort from the kind of desire that animals have. And it's our capacity for free choice. So acts of understanding, acts of free choice would be the, the first and most obvious things that Thomas thinks of as acts that are really acts of the human soul. Now we have to be careful here. We don't mean, you know, you're still one substance for Thomas. You are one being. It's not as if your soul is one being and you're some other being. You are a human being that is both body and soul. But just as your eye or your hand can be said to have operations, right? Thomas thinks the human soul has its own operations. Okay. Um, and, uh, and this is part of his argument. I mentioned this for why he thinks we can prove that even the human soul is naturally immortal, is that um, it operates without depend. He thinks the human intellect operates of itself without any dependence upon any particular part of the body um, as its organ or instrument. Now, he still thinks you have to have under- uh, imagination and sense experience in order to be able to understand, but that's not it's not as if the intellect is related to your imagination the way that your visual power is related to your eye. Instead, he thinks um, your imagination is more comparable to the visible object and you have this power for understanding and willing that's just of the soul itself. And again, I think this is important for, you know, spiritual theology, you know, talk of, you know, what's interior to the soul or the interior life. Um, These really mean something substantive in in St. Thomas's metaphysics. Okay, so, so Martin asked uh, if I would explain the difference between ratio and intellectus, so reason and intellect, and you know, sort of like where the border is between the two. So um, in Thomas's account of the, human be- of the human being and of human intellectual activity, he thinks of the apprehension of what things are, apprehension as the first and most fundamental act of the human mind, and then the, the capacity for judgment, okay, as the secondary act of the human mind. 
apprehending what things are and forming judgments about things. So like understanding that, understanding, you know, oak tree as a plant, under knowing what a plant is, and then judging an oak tree is a plant. Okay. That would be apprehension and judgment. Okay. Reason whereby I move from one understanding to another understanding. So what I'm doing when I construct an argument with more than one proposition, that's the dividing line for, for reason, okay? Um, Thomas is really clear. He doesn't think that angels engage in acts of reasoning in that sense. Again, they don't have to like, they don't have to reason and argue and think through chains of reasoning to reach conclusions about the way that things are, okay? They're, all of their understanding is more like vision. You know, it sounds nice, okay? Then, then, you know, I wouldn't have a job as a philosopher. So, okay, and no one in the sciences would have a job. Okay, all right. Um, uh, so, Marilyn's question was: What effect does diminishment of sense cognition, being blind or being deaf, have on reason, according to Saint Thomas? Yeah. So, this is a great question. So, Thomas does think that, incidentally, uh, some incapacity in one or another mode of sense cognition might uh, be an impediment to understanding well, but that in itself, an incapacity uh, with one of the sense, the modes of sense cognition doesn't immediately weaken the power for understanding, okay? It just, it, it presents certain obstacles or impediments. The same way that there would be an obstacle or an impediment for vision, if there were no lights on and if the sun didn't shine, right? It's not that the power for vision is itself diminished, but it's not able to operate as well because you don't have the, the you know, you don't have one of the conditions needed for it to operate well. And Thomas would generally say the same thing. Now, this being said, of the senses, um, it's a little surprising which one Thomas thinks is the most important for understanding. It's not sight, it's not hearing, it's certainly not smell or taste, it's the sense of touch. So that's a little surprising. Thomas, uh, it, 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 for reasons I, I can't fully get into, but Thomas thinks that the, um, the sense capacity that's most important as a foundation for, in, for intellectual understanding by human beings is actually the sense of touch. Uh, my wife, uh, we, um, we homeschool and my wife really likes Montessori education and Montessori educators love this as a view of St. Thomas that it's, you know, there's something very fundamental about the tactile, okay. Uh, Thomas, um, following Aristotle, this is a view he takes from Aristotle and um, this is kind of strange, but uh, they do think that human beings are, are more or less uh, excellent at tactile cognition and that being better at tactile, this is such a weird view, but like being better at tactile cognition generally corresponds to being of a somewhat softer, flabbier body. So, and this Aristotle just says, and this is why like heavier people are generally more intelligent. Okay. Whether this is, uh, whether this is accurate or not. <laughs> okay. But anyway, it's a surprise. So, you know, you asked about being blind or being deaf. Those would those are not as much of an impediment to intellectual cognition for St. Thomas because he doesn't think that those are the most important um, sense modes for uh, for intellectual cognition. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, so another question here is: um, in baptism, the soul growing up is awakened. Are there different states of the soul? Um, and uh, um, I think consciousness and the awareness and sin that leads to spiritual death, how to think about baptism and about um, spiritual death. Okay, so this is much more of a theological um, question, uh, but I'll just use the, you know, the, the traditional term for what we receive in Catholic theology and in Thomas's theology for what we receive in, the, in, in baptism is the is sanctifying grace. And I'll just say very briefly, since I'm not a theologian, sanctifying grace, um, because the human soul has being in its own right and activity in its own right, Thomas thinks that the human soul itself can be the subject of 
an accidental habit that God gives to it, okay? Because it has being in its own right, activity in its own right. And that's what sanctifying grace is. Um, it's a, a new mode of being that God bestows upon the human soul. Okay, everything I just said should be fact-checked probably with one of the Dominicans, uh, you know, from Dominican house or, or, or theologian. But that's my understanding of how Thomas thinks. And so the very soul is sort of accidentally modified by God to be capable of living this new and different sort of life with new and different sorts of activities or not radic not like completely new, but modifications of our, of our activities, you know, um, our intellect is capable of things. Otherwise it wouldn't be our will is capable of things. Otherwise it wouldn't be. What do we mean? Our intellect is capable of knowing truths of faith with certainty, despite the fact that they're not evident to us from the senses and our will is capable of loving God and adhering to God above all things which Thomas thinks is not something that we can do without, without, without sanctifying grace. Okay. And of course that's fundamentally, you know, what, what the state of sanctifying grace is about loving God above all things. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Very good question. Is the soul affected by what happens to the body or vice versa? So this is um, one way to think about this question is um, first in terms of even something like changes of place. Um, does the soul change place? Well, not the way that the body changes place, right? So the body actually has a place, like I'm sitting right here and then I might be standing over there. You can say that my soul goes from being here to being there, but that's like saying that my, you know, desire for a hamburger goes from being here to being there. Like I'm a thing with a desire for a hamburger I go over there. So my desire for a hamburger went over there. That's the only sense in which you could say like the soul goes from being here to being there. Okay. Now the soul is in other, another sense though, affected by the body. The human soul is because it has these activities of, of intellectual activity and, and volitional activity. And Thomas thinks there are things that we do that depend upon and follow upon what happens in the body. And very clearly, if I make free choices and I make free choices about what to do with my body, then we have to say that the soul acts on and directs um, the, the motions or activities of the body. So there's a whole, there's a lot to be said there about, you know, um, the metaphysics and the, the, even the physics, the way you're conceiving of the physical world to think of the human body as being moved by being moved by the soul. But Thomas is going to say that, and Aristotle are going to say the same thing about Fido the dog. His, that Fido's soul moves, you know, moves Fido. You have to work out exactly what that, what that means. Okay. Okay. I guess my question was more like along the lines, if, if, if someone experiences trauma with the body. Mm, yeah. Okay. With sin, whether it be their own, if it's inflicted upon them, does that injure the soul in a way where it starts to affect the will and the rationale in a way that yeah. would be more disordered than what the world, because the, the world doesn't look at it that way, mm -hmm. typically mm -hmm. as the human soul being affected by what's happened to the body. They yeah. just look at it as, heal up and get well and mm. but i believe in in the theology and in saint thomas aquinas in the thinking of that if the body's injured the soul's injured and it needs to heal mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah good so yeah no that makes perfect sense and and um uh i would say it's hard to give a a, a sort of unqualified answer across the board if the question is is it possible for ways in which, you know, we're wounded in our bodiliness, right, to result in, you know, a woundedness in the soul? I think the answer is, you know, obviously going to be yes, right? Is it always the case that some particular way of being wounded in the body, right, also, you know, wounds us in the soul? And what does it mean to even talk about a wound in the soul, right? It means um, that we're somehow led to... Um, understand more poorly and more importantly to will less well right um, um or to you know 
Um, so, you know, this is where in, in, you know, Thomas's Aristotelian psychology, we talk about habits, we talk about these powers as having, you know, having habits. Um, and yeah, of course, the, our, our habits of intellect and will are affected by, in, in myriad ways, by the things that happen to us, um, that happen to us bodily. Is it always necessarily the case that every wound of the body wounds the soul? Um, I think Thomas is going to say no, uh, it, because um, there is, you know, there's also, this is more into, you know, the domain of spiritual theology, I think, but, um, you know, there, there is also the, the, the possibility of, of willing well, even in the face of really extreme, you know, um, um, extreme adversity. And I think this is what's held up to us in the example of, you know, of the martyrs that, um, no, but that's not to say, you know, anyone who does, who experiences woundedness in the soul from woundedness in the body is, you know, like, that's not to, to cast, a, you know, aspersion, right? Um, but, uh, um, uh, yeah, like I said, it's, it, it gets really more into, into questions of spiritual theology, and I, um, I think a lot more could be said to give a really good, uh, a really good answer to the question. If it's just about the possibility, then yeah, absolutely. Um, of course, you know, our being wounded in the body frequently, you know, uh, wounds us in our, in our, you know, in our soul.